Hey everyone, welcome, welcome back once again. Another episode of Game Talk Radio. I'm Greg. You're the listeners. How's everyone doing today? I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. It's actually Monday night, pretty late Monday night, because I have to work tomorrow on Tuesday. But you know, I thought I could just wait till Wednesday, my next day off, and I could do the podcast and get it up. But I think you all have an expectation of seeing this thing go up Tuesday afternoons. So I'm going to make sure you get it. Even though I have to work tomorrow, I'm just going to do it tonight. And then maybe I can play some games or hang out and do something on Wednesday. Something fun, something game related. So it's been quite the uh, quite the weekend, actually, work-wise. Uh, nothing in particular very busy, just uh, Dom needed some time off from the store. So I've actually been working every day since last Thursday. And so I'm finally have a day coming off on Wednesday. Tomorrow is kind of my last day to get, you know, like like my last day of, of these longer days, this long week, and I'll get back to it. But I was talking to somebody in the store uh, who listens, Kyle's a friend of mine, and I was jokingly saying, oh, yeah, like, remember that story I told on the podcast about this trade-in I had done a while ago? So if, if you remember, if you've been listening for a while, I've told you the story about uh, the, the customer that comes, Chet, who comes from Minnesota to sell me stuff, to sell me trades. And he ended up coming in a week before Christmas. And obviously, you know, we were on our Christmas break for Christmas and New Year's, so I don't even think I got a chance to talk about this. Or if I did, it wasn't in, in a lot of depth. And so I want to kind of go over that story a little bit because it's a follow-up. Um, the first the first interaction I had with him, I want to say, was way back in, I think it was last year in February, but it might have been before that a little bit, but about a year ago. And uh, he's part of these Facebook groups where it's like, hey, we're trading, uh, you know, the, 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 the buy-sell trade groups on Facebook. And someone who knows me and knows my store saw he was selling a huge collection. My the, the guy I know from around here, he didn't have enough money to buy it. So he said, hey, why don't you talk to Greg at Game Trade? He, he'll probably be the guy to, uh, to buy this from you. And so uh, Chet reached out to me and said he had about, you know, twenty to $30,000 worth of stuff retail value and was just looking for 10,000 bucks. That's all he wanted for it. That would get him square with what he had. And he would have to bring, and I kid you not, two van loads full of stuff from Minnesota. So his plan was to come down, drop everything off, go back, grab the second load, bring the second load and drop everything off. And this was a lot of stuff. When I say it was a lot of stuff, it was a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of stuff. If you've if you've been in my store, I've got an area where I keep the NES games and N64 games, and there's a, kind of like a little hallway between that and where the Wii games are, and that hallway was full of his boxes of stuff. And so he brought the. I'll really quickly cover this. You know, he brought the first box, and I noticed it wasn't. We weren't able to take it. A lot of the stuff was in really tough shape. The reason I'm telling you this story is because he told me that he bought this huge collection from someone in Alabama. And it was when he went there, he went there to, to look at the games and the guy came out with no shirt on, huge Confederate flag up at the house and his and like a gun on his hip. And so Chet felt intimidated by that. And he almost felt like he couldn't say no to the deal, you know, because of the, the, the condition. Well, he didn't like the condition of it, but he felt like he was trapped. So anyway, long story short, he buys it. He tries selling stuff locally tries bringing it to me even I'm like hey man I'm sorry uh you know I even because we had I had agreed that I'd pay him 200 extra dollars for driving it here 
and I ended up still giving him the $200, even though I didn't end up buying his games because I felt bad. And, you know, that's just me in a nutshell. You know, I talk about my hyper empathy all the time. Well, like it, I felt like it was the right thing to do. And, you know, because he did drive out here, he drove out here, he packed up a van with the intention of selling stuff to us. And so, you know, so anyway, the deal didn't get made, unfortunately. And then, uh, ultimately, a few months later, he had another collection, which was all sealed and very close to sealed mint condition PS1 and PS2 RPGs. So I bought all of that. That was amazing. So if the first lot was a was a one, this lot was a 10. It was great. And so anyway, so he calls me up again around uh, around the beginning of December. He texts me and he's like, hey, man, I think I have another collection I want to sell to you. I got another lot. It's worth, you know price charting says it's worth eight grand. Would you pay four grand for it? And I'm like, well, now something just to understand about my industry. If it's an $8,000 item, I could easily pay $4,000 for it because as soon as I sell that item, I've got my money back. And that's important. That's a big deal. Unfortunately, if you're buying hundreds of items up to thousands of items for that price, it takes a lot more time to get your money back out of it. And it also means there's a lot more work that you have to get out of it, right? Now there's a little less risk with a lot more pieces, but technically there's more things that could break. So selling one thing that's worth $8,000 for 4,000 is pretty easy. Selling a thousand things for for $8,000 that's, you know, you paid 4,000 for is a lot, is a lot harder. In fact, you don't necessarily make your money back very quickly with something like that. Now I, I've been in business a long time, so I don't have to make money quickly. That's not really my my business. My business is getting in product and moving product. I do big sales, you know. Like I don't I don't need to buy something today for ten bucks, and I don't have to sell it tomorrow for twenty to keep the lights on. That's not my business model, and I that's not how I operate. So anyway, uh, he calls me up, you know, and I'm like, hey man, it's like a week before Christmas. This is probably the absolute worst time to bring in a trade because I just. I don't really have the time to deal with this stuff. I said, customers are crazy. You know, it, it's that time of year. It's Christmas. You know, it's Christmas. We're super busy. And he's like, well, I'm sorry to say, like, the only day I can come in is this Saturday, and I need to get it in, you know, because I need the cash. And I'm like, okay, well, um, let's see what I can do. Uh, so I, you know, I, I look at his list of stuff, and he said it's worth eight grand. And I'm like, you know what? There is some pretty good stuff here. I'll do the four grand if it's all in good shape. You know, we have to check it out because he's got like 10 Sega Genesis systems and 10 PS1s and you got to test that stuff because you just don't know. And unfortunately, he, you know, he told me he tested most of it and I'm like, that's cool. But unfortunately, I have different standards than a lot of places do. So no offense to you. It's just I have to I have to test it. And so he he brought a bunch of extra stuff, you know, saying, hey, this is in case we don't get to that 4000 number, because if you can't take something because it's defective, I want you to, you know, I brought some extra stuff and it was some N64 systems and some other stuff. And so, um, you know, he comes in, I, I go over everything and it's, it's in pretty good shape for the most part. There's a few things we couldn't take. There were some heavy hitter, hitter items like a Silent Hill three that had topside damage. There was some other stuff, some stuff we couldn't take. And that, like, that really sucked like that, that kind of killed the vibe. Um, but he still did pretty good. And so with the extra stuff he brought, we still ended up giving him like 4,100 bucks for everything. And so he came in expecting four grand. He's leaving with 4,100. So I'm pretty happy with that. Now he showed up at like two in the afternoon on a Saturday, like the Saturday before, like two Saturdays before Christmas, still got through it all. I think it was like nine, nine o'clock or nine 30 by the time we got him out the door, got him paid. And Dom and I wrapped up and decided to go have a beer across the street, um, before being done for the day. And, uh, so 
you know, I'm we're there, we're, we're having dinner, having a beer and a burger, and uh, and all of a sudden I get a text from Chet, and he's actually, it's a really long text, and, and and I don't know, like, and again, I can't stress this enough, like, like Chet's a really nice guy, and um, and so when he texts me something like this, like I take this quite seriously because it's not like it's just some jerk off who, who's like a pain in my ass, you know, like, like Chet's a genuinely good person and he's brought me good stuff and I've hopefully paid him good money and we have a good relationship, you know? And then I, I, I cherish the relationships that I make through this store and, and in life. Like that's just like that to me is more important than, than, than things, you know, I cherish these, these great moments. So, you know, we're out there, we're having, we're having dinner or whatever. And I get this text from him. Basically, it's a long, very long text. And I, I'm not going to go over the whole thing in detail, but it basically said something along the lines of, you know, I brought this extra stuff because I wanted to get extra money and I brought you extra stuff, but I didn't get any extra money. And I feel really disappointed, you know, and I feel like I didn't get a good deal and all this other stuff. And I'm like, well, hold the phone. You know, I just got done working on this stuff for the last eight hours. You know, and, and I'm like, I busted my ass to get through this stuff. And I feel like we paid a really good amount for it, you know, and so I'm kind of like, you know, like that's frustrating to me. And, and not, I'm not mad at him. I'm just more like I'm mad at the situation. Like, how did I how did we get to a point where he didn't say that to me when we were negotiating the price? You know, not that I could have paid much more. Honestly, I was I felt like I was at my limit for the condition the stuff was in. And, you know, that's the thing a lot of people don't realize, too, is that it's not always about just a disc being scratched. You know, if you have a case that's broken, a corner's all chipped away, you have to replace that case. We have a higher standard of product at my store. So if a case comes in and there's rental stickers all over it and I can't get them off, I have to replace that case. That's a buck, 50 cents to a buck. And so all these little things add up, you know, and you got to kind of attack it all these different ways. And so all those little things are little bits of money out of your profit. So before you know it, you're not paying 4000 4100 anymore. You're paying 4500 4600 because you're replacing cases. And, and like a lot of the games were disc only. I had to give them jewel cases and they were scratched up so I had to fix them. But a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on. And so I read this and I'm kind of like frustrated a little bit. And I'm like, okay, well, I said, you know, hey, man, I'm sorry. I said, I wish you had said something when we were at the store. But honestly, I don't think I would have paid much more. I said, I, I feel like... This was more than I would have paid the average person coming in because we made a deal ahead of time and you drove here. So I always give you a little bit extra because you make this huge drive from Minnesota. And uh, and we're kind of going back and forth. And the, the follow up is is actually kind of sad. And I, I'm not telling this story as like a way to like we're not picking on him. We're not doing that. It's just that it's such a sad story because as we're talking more, he goes, well, I was really hoping to get forty five hundred dollars because that's what I need to get my stuff out of pawn. And I was like, stuff out of pawn? What are you talking about? Like, how are you in debt? Like, you have this huge collection. You just, well, you just sold me. Like, how were you in debt before? And basically, he admits that this was a collection. He bought this collection in Las Vegas. And it came with a truck. He bought, like, a truck full of games. And apparently, he got hosed on the deal again. And one of the things he replied back to, and this is why I had to kind of tell the story earlier, was he said, you know, I made another Alabama deal. It, this time, it just wasn't in Alabama, and it, it really broke my heart. Like the guy's really nice, and he's he just got married recently, and his wife's very sweet person too, and they're very nice people. But I think he's just made a few mistakes. And game flipping is not as easy as you think. <laughs> it could be, you know. And the thing about Chet is, I and I don't know a hundred percent all the details. And if I don't know if he even listens to this podcast, and if he does, you know, I 
you know, I f- correct me, you know, chat on any details if I'm wrong. But part of what it was was that I think one time he bought a collection really cheap and he was able to flip it and make a decent amount of money. And once you get that one, I know that itch. I know that bug. I have it. I have it. I, I got it. I got it 15 years ago for the first time, 20 years ago for the first time. And, and you know, I had to turn it into a business because that's how much I, I had it. But I've gotten that bug before. And so I know what it's like when you see something you like, which is video games. You're able to buy a whole bunch and then make like a thousand bucks. You're like, holy crap, like there's something here. I could do this again. Which leads him to go around the country looking for good deals on game collections. He, I think what he does is he pawns all of his stuff to get the initial cash. Then he buys the collection. He sells what he can at his own, like he does like his own house kind of garage sale thing for just video games. And honestly, I see the price stickers he puts on stuff. He puts stuff at very fair prices. I'm surprised more of this stuff doesn't sell. It just takes time. And in my business, as I said earlier, when you buy, you know, 4,000 items or 1,000 items, you know, for 4,000 bucks, it takes time to sell that. It's not a quick flip. If you buy one thing for 4,000 and it's worth 8,000, you can flip that one thing. Boom, you're back in the, in the, back in black. You're not in the red. With this game I bought from Chet, I might still be in the red, to be honest. I don't know if I've made the $4,000 back from what I paid him in the stuff I'm going to sell. Will I make it back over the year? Absolutely. Did I make it back yet? Probably not. If I had to, if I had to say, like, just knowing what he had that I sold that was like the heavy hitters and the big stuff, because there wasn't a lot of that. There was a lot of great $10 to $15 titles, not a ton of going to sell as soon as it hits the shelf um, product. But again, that's not, I don't play the, I don't play the fast game. I play the slow game. But when you pawn your items to get the cash for something, you're putting yourself on the clock. You have a time limit. And that time limit, is it, it is causing you to rush and like I say in any negotiation now this isn't just video games this is anything in life listen well if you ever want a tip on negotiations this is the number one rule to know in any negotiation in any negotiation ever the person with less patience is going to get the worst deal that's just how it goes the person in a bigger hurry is going to get the worst deal negotiating is a part of negotiating is not showing your hand, not giving up everything. So if you're in a hurry and you're rushed, you're going to have to concede price. You're going to have to concede anything. Like if I had looked at Chet and said, you know what, man, after looking at all this, I can only do 3000. He might've still sold to me for 3000. I wouldn't do that. And that's not how I negotiate. I don't, I don't evaluate people. I don't do this sort of thing. Like, and I don't lowball people. It's not, it's not my game. I pay what something's worth. As long as I can afford to pay it, thinking I can sell it and make some money, keep my lights on, keep my employees fed, keep myself fed. Um, not that I couldn't stand to lose a few, but I'm just saying. Uh, and so, unfortunately, part of of negotiating power is not being up against a wall. And I, so I think Chet puts him up, put himself up against a wall, unfortunately. And it really sucks because. He's a really good guy and he's freshly married and they should be looking at getting a house and they should be looking at doing other things. But unfortunately, he's made a few bad deals, which, you know, at the time they looked like they might have been good deals. And and I, I, I'm lucky to say I've never really made a bad deal. I've made deals where I would arguably say, you know, this wasn't great. It was OK, but I've never made a bad deal. Like I've never made a deal and then instantly was like, oh, I messed up. You know, so I'm lucky. But as a hyper empath, 
I know exactly how he felt because I know how I would feel if I made a bad deal. And so that gets projected onto me. And so I ultimately did feel that way because I've felt that way before. Um, and so that was kind of the follow up to that story. And he actually, you know, so we talked a bit more and, you know, he, he reached out a few weeks ago and said something like, are you ever hiring, man? He's like, I would even move to Green Bay just to work for you. You have my dream job. I wish I could do it. I wish I could do it. And, and I'm just like, you know, sorry, man, I don't have any openings right now. And I'm lucky that I, I own a business that a lot of people want to work for. Um, but yeah. And, and, you know, it is absolutely uh, a dream job for me and it's a dream job for a lot of people. Now, that's not saying it's not a job and it's not work. It absolutely is, but I'm very lucky. I'm, I consider myself quite blessed and lucky to have what I have. I worked very hard for it, but I still consider myself lucky. And, and so that was just a little bit of a follow-up. I know it's kind of a sad. I don't want to, like, bum you people out on your Tuesday afternoons here, but it, uh, you know, so it's kind of a bummer, but it is, it's, it's a lesson, I guess, too. And sometimes it's not, if something looks like a good deal, you know, it, it, you know, not everything that glitters is gold, as they say. And so I told him, I reached out and I said, hey, just so you know, said you, if you trust me, said if you ever see a deal come around and you think it's a good deal, if you want to run it by me first, I'll tell you if it's a good deal. And I can tell you a few tips. One, if someone has a whole bunch of games for sale and it sounds like a really good deal and it's been on sale for more than a day, it's probably not a very good deal. Because there are people who work a lot harder, work a lot faster to scoop this stuff up faster than you can imagine. I mean, there's big companies out there. There's there's JJ Games doing a huge online retailers. There's there's you know there's big there's big used game stores. Even in in Wisconsin, we've got we big players in the Midwest Gaming Classic and other you know gaming convention scene. Like they're out there. There's a big time out there. And so if it's a good deal, but it's been on the market for a few days, it's not probably not a great deal. It's not like when you're buying a house and the house is on the market for a few days and then they're taking offers. It's not really like that. You know, usually it's it's too late. So, um, you know, I told him, I said, I'll, I'll check any deal you want. And I said, you know, I won't snake it from you. You know, I won't try to buy it out from under you, but then we can hopefully prevent situations like this in the future. Because I, I, I want, he seemed, like I said, I want good things to happen to good people. And he's a good person. He just, you know, unfortunately he's made a few bad deals. And, and sometimes when you're trying to get out of a hole, you know, well, you got to dig yourself out sometimes. And sometimes if you're not digging the right direction, you find yourself deeper and deeper in the stuff. And so um, that was a little bit of a follow-up, though. So if you heard this story, it's just kind of it's kind of a sad one. There's not really a happy ending to that, um, except that I did get a text from a few weeks ago saying that he might have another collection for me. And I said, okay, man, but do you want me to check it out first? And he said, no, don't worry about it. And I said, okay. So I'm not sure what's going to happen there. Um, but... I really, I really hope that, uh, I really hope that he is able to, to get, you know, get caught back up, you know, because it's, it's life can be tough enough already when you're not playing behind the eight ball. Um, so with that very, very sad story, <laughs> it's like the saddest update ever. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, I have my game of the week picked out. I have my pickup pile of the week, which you'd think would be shorter since I had a big one last week from the buildup of all the Christmas, but it's not, it's big. Uh, and we'll go over that. Actually, you don't need these. Just those. It's not that big. It's it's medium size. And then ultimately, there's three stories I want to talk about, but two are completely intertwined. Uh, and the third is actually a feel-good story. But the first one we're going to talk about is uh, ultimately today, uh, just today, Sony announced they're not going to participate in E3 of 2020. So Sony and the PlayStation will not be at E3. That's not really news because they weren't at E3 in 2019. 
But anyway, they're not going to 2020. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But then after that, we started to see some really interesting um, commentary come out. So Jason Schreier from Kotaku started coming out and saying things like, well, let me tell you, you know, E3 in 2019 felt like a like a graveyard. You know, it, it, it was not as busy, yada, yada, yada. And we have some numbers to talk about that. And we're, so, so ultimately, it's going to be one huge story, I think. I have to try to figure out how to break it up into two segments for the podcast so I can get my two videos out tomorrow instead of just one big one. Since most people don't, like, listen to a really long video, like, I think they see a video of mine that's like, Greg talks for 30 minutes. And, like, I can't stand this guy for five minutes, let alone 30. <laughs> but, you know, we'll try to find a way to break it up. So first we're going to talk about Sony not participating, <clears throat> and then we'll kind of roll into the, the E3 stuff. And then lastly, we've got a little bit of a story, which is... Uh, uh, this is a feel-good story about uh, some gamer friends, one in Texas, one in the United Kingdom, and how uh, one the one the UK teammate started having a seizure while they were playing, and how the gamer in Texas helped. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. This is a really nice feel-good story to end the podcast, and then we'll do game of the week, pick up how the week, and then I'm going to get out of here because I got to work tomorrow and I got to go to bed and uh, and all that jazz. So. Uh, with that being said, everyone, buckle up, grab your scotch, sit down in your chair next to the fireplace, pet the dog, and let's get ready to roll. Here we go. So first up on the podcast today, we are going to be talking about the story that's not really a story because we already kind of knew it was coming, but PlayStation, Sony, <clears throat> has announced that they will not be attending E3 2020. So this year's E3 will be completely devoid of Sony, which really isn't that big of a surprise because they didn't go last year. <laughs> and so there, there was a fundamental shift in, in how Sony has decided to, to get their information out to the public. And it's funny because there's this article here. This is the headline from GameIndustries.biz. It says the firm told GameIndustry.biz that it does not feel the vision for the event is right for what it has planned for this year. Instead, it will attend quote unquote hundreds of consumer events to showcase upcoming games for PS4 and PS5. Quote, after thorough evaluation, SIE, that's Sony, has decided not to participate in E3 2020, said a Sony Interactive Entertainment spokesperson. We have great respect for the ESA as an organization but we do not feel the vision of E3 2020 is the right venue for what we have focused on this year. We will build upon our global event strategy in 2020 by participating in hundreds of consumer events across the globe. Our focus is on making sure fans feel part of the PlayStation family and have access to play their favorite content. We have a fantastic lineup of titles coming to PlayStation 4, and with the upcoming launch of the PlayStation 5, we are truly looking forward to a year of celebration with our fans. End quote. So this is the article that literally just came out today. And here's an article from November 15th, 2018. So this is a year and a few months ago from Jason Schreier and Kotaku. Sony is skipping next year's E3, which would be 2019. It's traditional booth and press conference in a move that will have a significant negative impact on the video game industry's annual trade show. This was their, this was their statement a year and two months ago. Quote, as the industry evolves, Sony Interactive Entertainment continues to look for inventive opportunities to engage the community, said Sony in a statement. Now, that's the second time that they've noted that Sony's made comments about the consumer and the customer wanting to be a part of the event. 
And so this makes a lot of sense to me because one of the things I wanted to look up right away, and there's actually some E3 numbers here. So roughly E3 2015 had 50,000 attendees, 2016 had 50,000 attendees, 2017, which was the first year they opened it to the public, 68,000 attendees, 2018 had 69,000 attendees, a record for the ESA. And then in 2019, so last year, minus Sony, it fell to 66,000. So it dropped three grand. Now, was that because of Sony? Maybe. Um, would you lose 3,000 people just because Sony wouldn't be there? It's possible. I. It's more so that just this, I think you're going to start seeing a trend like every year is going to be a little less busy. Now, the reason that I think that's important is because Sony knows that they don't have to pay all of the money to put on this incredible E3 show. And I love E3. Like it is a, it was a time of year. that's really fun. It's like a week of game announcements and we love seeing the presentations. And it used to be a, a, um, a yearly tradition where I, all my friends and I would get together that Monday night and watch the Sony press conference at the store right after close. It was neat. And it was like a fun thing. I like E3 and I'm still going to watch it. And I still want to follow things. But it's changing. And as I said earlier, they said it last year and they're saying it again this year. Sony wants to have more. Again, here they say, quote, we're looking forward to a year of celebration with our fans. Which Jason Schreier commented on that one of the juicy rumors he had heard was that Sony was having issues with the ESA because they wanted the focus to be more on the consumer. There are events like that. PAX is like that. Um, you know, there's retro, Portland Retro Gaming. There's RTX. There's all these other sort of like conventions throughout the United States that focus more on customer interaction, less on the press side of it. Because E3 essentially used to be a press event and an industry event, and then those outlets would share with the masses. And now that we're able to consume, and it's so easy for Sony to broadcast that, they don't need to spend the money to build that hype. It's essentially trimming the fat of their advertising and marketing budget. And so one of the things I wanted to look up was the game awards viewership that was the first thing i thought of was i thought well if we have an event that sony wants to get out of and sony wants to reach their own customers by just having their own streaming show kind of like nintendo does nintendo directs um sony does their own same sort of thing say they decide to do that what kind of reach do we have here now again you saw the attendance now attendance doesn't count the people that are watching at home but your attendance for E3, 50,000 to 69,000. That's ultimately the range of the attendees there. And now you don't know how far it was reaching because then they, you know, how many people watch the trailers on YouTube, how many people watching Twitch, you know, GameSpot's coverage live on Twitch, IGN's coverage on Twitch, all that sort of stuff. But here's what I do know the Game Awards bragged of their numbers. So they had, let's take a look here. So the Game Awards bragged that in 2014, they had 1.9 million people watch. 2015, 2.3, then 3.8. Then in 2017, a jump to 11.5 million people. 2018, 26.2 million people. And in 2019, so just last month, the Game Awards boasted 45 million viewers. So now, what... You can kind of see the strategy here with Sony, right? Why would they pay all this money to the ESA to have a show floor and to have to do a press conference and to rent all these halls and spend all this money when they can just do live events themselves 
and get up to 45, I mean, up to obviously 45 million people are down for streaming the Game Awards. So roughly how many of them would be there for any sort of Sony announcement? And so I think it's a business strategy on their part. They, I think they've seen that E3 has kind of run its course for this sort of large gathering expo sort of thing. And I think they want to do more interactive things with the fans. Now, is it a good strategy? I think it's fine. I don't think this hurts Sony at all. I think, and it didn't hurt them last year, obviously. And when you're an industry leader, like they are right now uh, in the game industry worldwide with the PlayStation being so popular, you can make decisions like this. It'd be a little bit different if they were, you know, not where they want to be sales-wise and everything. So we, we push all that aside. Is it a good idea? I mean, only time will tell, but ultimately I think that E3 is going to keep reducing and reducing and reducing. And so it makes more sense for Sony to have a stronger stance and to make their own events and to go to more fan-driven events. And I, as a fan, I obviously prefer that. I'd rather, because not, not if you go to E3, it's very difficult to be able to get into like a PlayStation press conference in the past few years. It's something you usually have to wait outside for. Obviously, certain people have invites, but like if you want to get into the general admission, you have to like wait forever. And it's not really a fun event. It's not, it almost doesn't feel like it's for the fans. It feels like they allowed the fans to come in, but it was always an industry event. Uh, this is a slight story. The one time I went to E3 was in 2006. Okay. And this is a long time ago. It was not the same show, not the same people running it people wise, you know, same company running it, obviously. But I remember going there and I went there as a manager for GameStop. Now, the way it worked was GameStop had a bunch of E3 badges they weren't going to use. So managers were allowed to essentially get the badges for free. And they did it based on tenure. And I've been there quite a few years. So they said, hey, you know, I asked for one and I got one. So I got to go to E3 in 2006, which was a great E3 to go to. It was the year before it was the summer before we and ps3 came out it was cool i remember that was the summer that before guitar hero 2 came out and guitar hero had just taken the world by storm guitar hero 2 was gonna be two player it was gonna be like everything was gonna be better and so it it was this really awesome event that i got to go to now i would walk around the floor now this was before it was open to the public so this was just an industry event so everyone who was at this show was from the industry in some point. Some, some were retail people, some were retail buyers, some were game developers, some were game publishers, some were marketing people, some were programmers, you know, all that stuff. We, everybody was there. And so I remember walking around and I, I tried to show people, I went to booths and I was like, what is this? Tell me about this. You know, I'd be talking to them. And then they would look at me like, oh, you're, and they would look at my badge and they had like different color badges for retailers than with like, like they had different colored badges or there was some different mark on it. And people would see that I was like with GameStop and word must've got around pretty quickly that GameStop had given some of their store managers the opportunity to come because people just did not want to talk to us. <laughs> like pe people would be like, see that I was from GameStop and see that I was like, you know, like a retail partner. And they were instantly turned off by talking to me. I, it happened to me many times, like more than I'd care to admit. And it definitely enough that left an impression. And so I think I thought to myself, this is really off-putting, but that was kind of the level that, that this show was on. And obviously, they opened it up to the public to try to appease Sony and even Microsoft and EA to an, to an idea where they want to be more fan interactive. And so, obviously, and, and, and I felt the show was very cold to someone like me, you know. And, and again, that's anecdotal based on my experience, but I'm just saying it felt that way because I wasn't a quote-unquote deep industry person. I wasn't a programmer, a publisher. I wasn't a, a developer, 
And so, you know, I think that's part of this is that Sony wants to have these more consumer driven events. They want to go cut out the middleman, cut out the press, cut out the bloggers, cut out the podcast. Like, you know, you, you, you want that, you need that, but go right for the fans because the bloggers and stuff are going to be there as fans anyway. They don't consider themselves journalists, really. They consider themselves fans that are lucky enough to have a career talking about video games. And so that they found their niche, right? They found their their way, I think, to go directly to the consumer and to just not worry about the, the, the middleman. Just cut them out. And again, we can argue and debate whether that's a good idea or not. Ultimately, time will tell. I don't think it's that big of a deal. And I think it's probably ultimately the right decision for Sony at this time. And it does make me very curious to see because that's what we're going to talk about in the next video and, and the next part of the podcast here is we're going to talk about the decline of, of E3. And so, like, does Sony skipping... The question really comes down to, is Sony skipping E3 worse for Sony or worse for the ESA and the E3 show in general? And so, like I was saying before, is Sony not attending E3 worse for Sony or is it worse for the ESA and the E3 show? Uh, if I have to guess right away, I'm going to say it's worse for E3. Um, it's one of the big players. You, you think about the three big console manufacturers. You think about, you think about Microsoft, Nintendo, and Sony. Nintendo has really pulled back. They still have a show floor, like a booth on the floor. They still do a lot of fan stuff on the floor, but they don't really rent a booth or anything. They do their own treehouse directs. You've got Microsoft who rents the building right next to where the, e, the e, E3 show is. Um, but I believe they also still have a, sh a, a booth. And you've got Sony who's completely pulled out. And PC, with it being so scattered, you don't really have like a condensed PC. Like you have like, um, you know, like, oh, this the, the PC show brought to you by different sponsors. There are people who put on like a PC show, but it's not as, you know, it's not one company running everything. So it's not as focused. It's not as solid. And so what, what, kind of sparked this was Sony saying once again they were going to skip E3 which they said in 2018 as it referred to the 2019 E3 show so this really isn't news to anybody um, but this is what Jason Schreier had to say he said E3 is in the worst shape it's ever been last year it was half empty and that was before they doxed thousands of attending journalists so Sony skipping again would make total sense I'd expect them to announce their own big PS5 event instead now this is where I got some numbers from in the last video or the last part of the podcast I did which was it, you know, someone comments and says, but hey, here's the attendance in 2015, 50K, in 2016, 50K, 2017, 68,000, 2018, 69,000, and then in 2019, 66,000. So with Sony departing E3, attendance went from going from 68 to 69 back down to 66. Could that be from Sony? Possibly, but it also could just be that people are tiring of the show in general. And if you watched my last video, you'll know that I actually personally felt kind of when I went to E3 one time, I felt like if you're not one of the insiders, they don't want to talk to you. And so it's possible that fan attendance was going to go down because maybe they felt like the show wasn't for them. And that's something that's it's it's known that Sony wants to do more fan interaction stuff. So it just kind of all makes sense. Um, Jason Schreier, though, goes on to say that number includes every attendee, whether they bought three day or one day passes, which makes it inadequate data for determining how many people were actually on the show floor during E3 week. Trust me when I tell you it was the emptiest I've ever seen. So, I mean, 3000 people. That's ultimately like of the total, you know, it's roughly four percent or something like that 
reduction. So, is I mean, three thousand people not being at an event is a pretty big deal. Like that's that's thinning out the herd a little bit. I don't really understand Jason Schreier's argument here. I'm tr- I'm trying to like do the math in my head, and I don't I don't understand like what he's trying to say. So if the number of passes sold is still almost the same, he's just saying that it doesn't matter how many passes were sold because that was just for one day or three day, and so they might have sold sixty six thousand one day. And in 2018, they might have sold 69,000 three days. So there was only one day of business or something. I think that's the argument he's trying to make. I don't know. It kind of doesn't make sense. Um, you know, to which people start asking, you know, like, oh, you know, is E3 dead or just irrelevant? I don't think either is the case. I just think E3 became a huge spectacle. It became like this huge, everyone looks forward to. It's this huge, like, gamers watch it, you know, journalists attend it. That's all people are talking about for that whole week. And then... You know, it got almost too big for its britches. And so now we have to, it has to reduce. And the E3 can still be a great show, but is it going to go, is it going to start having, you know, 50 to 70,000 people there again? Probably not. You know, maybe they should bring it back down to normal, bring it back down to more manageable size and still be an event. You know, like you still got dice, you still got other things going on. Like you've got, um, game developers conference like you've got all this stuff going on like you can be a part of that and they've got a good spot in the summer your months before the holiday season people can show new products it's all good stuff it's just maybe they just have to change how they're going to do it because i think ultimately that big of a show just isn't, isn't really what is the best way to broadcast now sony's basically telling them and nintendo's done relatively the same thing we can just cut you out and just go right to our fans now it's easy to do a twitch stream i said in my last video about the game awards you know, reaching an unbelievable 45 million people. <laughs> so if, if the Game Awards can do that streaming, of course Sony can do that stream. Like, like Sony and, and Nintendo can get huge crowds without having to go through the hoops of, of E3. So, you know, and, and that's what's kind of weird is, you know, so a lot of people ask like, oh, is E3 the worst? Oh, E3 sucks. The ESA sucks. And this is such a, this is where I start to get a little frustrated because, you have an interesting split now between fans because uh, one thing that Jason Schreier brought up, and I don't see how it has anything to do with the relevance of this conversation when he's talking about how it's in the worst shape it's ever been. But he talks about how, of course, now he says they doxed thousands of attending journalists. Um, I think Michael Allen said it best uh, in, in, in the, he asked, he posed a question to him and said, you know, by doxing, it's implied that you did that on purpose. Doxing is the, um, it would be the act of revealing someone's personal information on the internet for the purpose to possibly have people, um, you know, uh, harass them. So Jason Schreier goes on to say that this was before they doxed thousands of attending journalists. And what actually happened was there was a way to access their registration info on the website. So doxing is usually a term meant to coincide with it being a malicious act as to where here, I would say it's more of a negligent act if that makes sense. Um, so I'm not quite sure whether, why, why he has to bring that up. It's more like, I think just his, like just, just jabbing, you know, just taking a wild stab. But, uh, it, you know, he goes on to say, it's just, it's just, it's just feels different, you know, and that it's the worst shape it's ever been. And I, and I mean, that's probably true. And, and it is interesting to see how the industry's changed, but when the industry's changing, at such a rapid pace, the way you deliver the news to the industry has to change too. And so having these just huge, expensive, extravagant events is kind of pointless. You know, I think 
the game awards have gotten better since they stopped trying to have it televised on TV or stop, stop, stop trying to have it televised. Stop trying to find a network to carry it. Do go where your audience is. Your audience is on Twitch. Your audience is on the internet. Go there. You don't, you don't need to be on spike TV, you know, to, to pull in some weird, like maybe you'll catch, you know, a couple tens of thousands of just people flipping it through channels who go, all oh, video games are cool. Forget all that. You just got 45 million people to watch you on the internet. And so, uh, is E3 dead? No. Is it going to be, is it going to adapt to this? I think so. And is it going to become a much smaller show again? Probably. Because I think ultimately that's really the best thing for it. I think just over the years, it just got bloated. It got too big. It just became this huge, huge spectacle. And you know, what's funny is we can still have E3 week. They could do the E3 show and then we can all just have all the different companies streaming their own events around E3. We can still make it a great event. It just doesn't have to be organized in, in a way that is is so bloated is the word I keep coming back to. So anyway, is E3 dead? No. Is it going to be the same? No. Is that okay? Yes. <laughs> All right. So last up on the podcast today, I wanted to cover this, uh, this story I mentioned earlier. So a... This is the headline Kotaku had. This is uh, yesterday at 4 o'clock. A gamer in Texas helped save her UK teammate after hearing him have a seizure online. While playing and talking with his teammate online, a teen in the UK started to have a seizure. His teammate, a woman in Texas, heard him, and when he stopped responding, she called local police in the UK to help her teammate across the pond. Aiden Jackson is 17 and lives in Widnes, England, as reported by the Liverpool Echo newspaper. On January 2nd, he was playing online with Dia Lathora when he began feeling sick. Moments later, Lathora heard over the internet what sounded like Jackson having a seizure. She tried to talk to Jackson but got no response. Quote, when he didn't respond, I instantly started to look up the emergency number for the EU, Lathora told the Liverpool Echo. When she couldn't find that number, she instead called the non-emergency number and shared Jackson's address and location with the police, who sent first responders to the home. So I just want to take a quick pause of the story to say what I what I really find interesting about this was that they tried one way. So Aiden Jackson or excuse me, Aiden Jackson was the one who had the seizure. Uh, Lathora first tried to find the emergency number for you, couldn't find it, didn't give up, actually went on to call the non-emergency number to still try and get people, uh, someone out there, which I find really interesting. Um, the story goes on to say Jackson's parents were downstairs during the incident, unaware that their son was suffering from a seizure. When the police arrived at their home, they had no idea why. One of the officers explained that they were responding to a call about an unresponsive male at his address and they had come and that it had come from America. Um, Jackson was rushed to a local hospital and stabilized. He's now back home and is waiting to see a doctor about his seizure. This isn't his first seizure. Back in May 2019, a seizure sent him to the hospital. After returning home, both Jackson and his parents thanked Dia Lathora. They are happy she was able to help. And that's the end of the story. Now, if I remember correctly, when I first heard about this, I thought that the parents were almost trying to send the police away because they didn't believe it. And this story kind of cuts out that part because it probably doesn't make him look very good, but basically they thought it was a joke. They're like, no, everything's fine here. Just get out of here. Get out of here. And so thankfully they were persistent and everything's fine. Uh, but I thought that was like kind of a good feel good story. You know, we don't get a ton of those anymore. You know, it just feels like, um, it feels like a lot of the stuff's always negative or something bad's happening. So I always try to inject a little bit of positivity when I can. And I thought that was nice. So 
worlds apart, half half a world apart. Guys just having a seizure. Friend helps him out. I think it's great. You know what else is great? Video games are pretty great, including my game of the week, which I have picked out here, and my pickup pile of the week here. So to begin with our game of the week, we're sticking with our PlayStation 1 theme. We're going to go all the way through these PS1 games, which probably take us through the whole year and into next year because I've got a lot of PS1 games because I love the PS1. So today we're going with the game Driver. So Driver is done by Reflections Interactive. This is the same team that went on to make Stuntman and then went on to make, uh, well, all the Driver games and then eventually went on to make uh, The Crew, The Crew. Um, so Driver, the first one for PS1, it's 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 a, it's a mission-based driving game and you can't get out of your car. So don't think like Grand Theft Auto. You're always in your car. Um, but you play as like a, you know, well, I don't know. Is this, is this a spoiler? Yeah, I don't care. You, you're you like an undercover cop pretending to be like a, a driver. You're like a, you're a wheel man, you know, so you do all these different jobs and it has like Grand Theft Auto style missions, except you just never get out of your car. And it's actually really fun. However, the problem with this game is when you first start off, the game has this kind of weird, um, well, I guess gatekeeping is the best way to say it. It's like a difficulty gate where you've got like a minute to perform eight different tricks to show that you know how to drive the car. And so you're in this parking garage and it's like, hey, do a 180 turn, do a reverse brake 180 torque. And it's like doing all this and you have to do all this stuff within like the time limit or you fail. You legit fail. You can't skip it either. So basically the game starts beating the crap out of you. And if you and it just says to you, well, if you can't beat this, then tough crap. <laughs> Too, too bad you suck at this game you're not going any further sorry folks it's the dark souls of driving it's the driving souls of dark 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 driving souls um but yeah so ps1 driver the game it's fun it didn't age super well um it's like a seven dollar game it's fun and and uh you know, it's it's a staple of the PS1 library, in my opinion. So I highly recommend it. Check it out. If you don't like the graphics of this one, uh, Driver 3 was the first one that lets you... Well, I think in Driver 2, you could actually... Yeah, Driver 2, you can get out of your car. But Driver 3 is the first one that was more like... It was on PS2 and Xbox, and it was more like Grand Theft Auto. And Driver 3 is pretty good. And then Parallel Lines is also very good. So there are the later Driver games are better, but, you know... And, and Driver 2 was on PS1, and that had you getting out of your car. That was did it before Grand Theft Auto did it on PS2. So it's pretty cool. Um, and then, of course, lastly, getting to my pickup pile of the week. Let's see here. What are we doing? There we go. That's what we wanted. So my pickup pile of the week is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight games this week. Um, I picked up a copy of Monster Tail for the DS. Uh, on the very front of the box, it says the next great DS game, according to Nintendo Power. Okay. I, I believe you, I guess. I don't know. Sure. Uh, it actually looks pretty fun. It looks kind of like a side-scroller platformer boss fighter. It looks really really good actually so i picked that up even though i'm not much of a handheld guy love the look of it um picked up finally a copy of fallout brotherhood of steel for the ps2 this game um not great but it is a fallout game it's the only fallout game that's ever you know that was on ps2 and it's like a top down it's more like a diablo type or a twin stick shooter almost than it is a fallout game but it's not bad it's okay it's not great it's not bad it's not great then I finally, if you all remember last week, we were talking about it. You know, last week I had put Grand Theft Auto Vice City Stories in my uh, in my collection. I decided to finish off the Grand Theft Auto collection. So four of the games I have here are Grand Theft Auto 3, 
Grand Theft Auto Vice City, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, and Grand Theft Auto Liberty City stories. So I find I completed the PS2 GTA series. I mean, we always have a ton of these at the store, so it's not like I ever didn't have access to buy these. It just I don't know why I didn't have them. I've been trying to think about that, and I normally if if there's a way I can play a game on a newer console, I sometimes won't collect the old one. But there is no way really to play these better. Not the, I mean, you can get them digit like you can get three. I think you get three Vice City and San Andreas all digitally. But, I mean, you know, as far as physical ownerships, like, this is kind of where the buck stops. So, Boom added four more Grand Theft Auto games. So, I completed the Grand Theft Auto collection on my PS2. Then I picked up a game called Puzzle Quest. This this reminds me of a DS game I loved called um, Clash of Heroes Might and Magic. It's like a puzzle game, almost like a Tetris or a Column, something like that. But then it, it integrates it into this weird, like, you have to traverse the map, and then there's a storyline going on. But every time you get into a quote-unquote battle, you have to play like this, you know. It's like it's like a turn-based, almost like a turn-based, card-based something. I, it's, I don't know. It's a puzzle game. It's a puzzle game with quests. It's a puzzle quest. I don't know if it's any good. I buy lots of dumb dumb crap. You guys know this already. Uh, and then lastly, I'm finally putting into my collection. I should have done this a long time ago. Um, I'm putting in a copy of Landstalker for the Sega Genesis. Got a complete one. I, I've always really liked this game. I have the pseudo-sequel spiritual successor on Sega CD. Uh, Dark Wizard. I think that's what Dark Wizard is. I think, maybe, yes, possibly. I'm not going to go over and look. Uh, but Landstalker, it's an isometric view, so it looks kind of like Diablo, uh, except it's like a platformer action RPG. It's pretty cool, and it's got really good pixel graphics. It's it's a it's a fun one. My only issue is I hate isometric view games like this one that have you doing jumping puzzles and platformers. Shit sucks. Like trying to trying to jump and platform when you're unsure of the depth perception of things just kind of sucks. But it is a good game. It's a fun one, and I added it to the collection. That is it for my pickup pile of the week. So if you took out the Grand Theft Auto games, I really only picked up like four games. It's not that big a deal. So just, it's, it, 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 don't, don't judge me. Okay. It's fine. Um, but Hey, thank you everybody as always for listening and watching. Um, I really do appreciate it. And I, I do apologize if this one feels a little bit rushed this week, but to be fair, I'm a little bit rushed. Uh, but obviously I'd rather get this for you, get it out, get it done, then try to have to worry about it and then be late a day and then start to stress about it and all that fun stuff. So thank you as always for listening and watching. I so appreciate it. I will talk to you again next week when I think my schedule goes back to normal. I think, I don't even think so. I might have to, do I work? I might work. I'll have to look. I might have to work next Tuesday. I don't know. Either way, I will get you a podcast. That is my promise to you, my guarantee to you because I love doing it and I hope you love listening to it. So thank you again. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye.